Wonderful. Please keep that open. Front of you, Genesis 28 and 29. And we prayed in that great song, didn't we? So let's make a start. Uh, how did you meet? Did someone introduce you? Was it an expected encounter or did the meeting take you by surprise? You could ask that question about all sorts of people, couldn't you? A friend or a neighbour, a colleague or a client, a husband or a wife. Uh, and many interesting conversations could flow from questions like that. Because relationships are what life is all about. But there's no more important question than how and where and when you met, we met, the Lord. Because our relationship with him is the most important relationship of all. Was that an encounter that we were expecting? Or did it take us by surprise? Are we still waiting to meet him? Do we believe that it could happen, that we could meet him? If it has happened, um, what difference does it make? Ali, would you mind just lifting this up for me whilst I keep speaking? Is that all right? It's flopped up on the microphone, thanks. At the heart of our passage today is one of the most famous encounters with God in the whole Bible. It's the story of Jacob's ladder, the stairway to heaven. And many years later, we're going to look at this story a little bit later on, Jesus tells his disciples that this encounter is fulfilled in him. He is the ultimate place where we meet God. And so Jacob's response to that meeting is a little picture of how we ought to respond to meeting the Lord as well. And one of the great things about working our way through Old Testament books of the Bible, like Genesis, is that we don't just focus in on the highlights, uh, verses 10 to 22, the, the meeting with, with, um, with the Lord at the stairway to heaven. But we get to see the background scenery, the slightly unusual stories that happen before and after the highlight as well. And so we get a fuller and a richer picture of what it means to encounter God. This morning we're going to focus on Jacob's ladder, but we're going to learn about those surrounding scenes as well. And the thread that holds the whole thing together is the same thread that holds the whole story of Genesis together. The promises of God. There are three, uh, four lessons, or four scenes. First of all, promises prayed for. Promises prayed for. First one. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. So the story begins with Isaac trying to tidy up the mess of last week's chapter. Do you remember the, the mess, the soap opera of chapter 27? Jacob, egged on by his mother, Rebecca, he steals Esau's blessing and he lies to his nearly blind father. He gets hold of God's promises for himself. Uh, Esau is enraged and he says, I'm going to kill my brother. Um, verse 41. And Rebecca hears of that and she tells Jacob, she says, do a runner, run away to your uncle Laban in Haran. But then the chapter finishes by Rebecca sidling up to Isaac and saying, I am fed up with living because of these Hittite wives of Esau's. So a rather sneaky tactic, Rebecca, at the end of chapter 27. Because Isaac no doubt feels pretty aggrieved at the way he's been deceived by Jacob. 
but so he's probably got a bit of sympathy for Esau. But he also agrees with Rebecca that these Hittite wives are a bit of a pain. At the very end of chapter 26, it said they were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebecca. And so it's as if Rebecca sidles up to Isaac and says, you don't want another Canaanite wife, do you? It really is time to send Jacob away. And so that's what he does. He sends him away. But his parting words are much more faithful than the way he tried to bless Jacob in chapter 27, verse 3. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a, a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Last week, remember, Isaac said to Jacob, I want to give you my blessing before I die. And it came across as very much as a a worldly transaction between a father and a son. Uh, No wonder it ended up being a mess. But now Isaac seems to have learned his lessons a little bit and he prays with faith for Jacob, for his son. And he gives him another one of those greatest hits lists of uh, the promises. God's personal blessing, multiple descendants, the promised lands. And maybe we can imagine Abraham passing on those blessings to Isaac and now Isaac prays them for Jacob even as he even as Jacob heads into exile verse 5 then Isaac sent Jacob on his way and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban son of Bethuel the Aramean the brother of Rebekah who was the mother of Jacob and Esau now Jacob won't return to the promised land for 20 years When he returns, he will get far more than he bargained for. He will have four wives, 13 children, enormous numbers of flocks and herds and servants. God does answer Isaac's prayers. He does bless Jacob. And his offspring will take possession of the land. And ultimately, Isaac's prayers are answered through Jacob's great descendant, Jesus Christ, who blesses the whole world. So what do we learn from this scene, promises prayed for? Well, I think that the promises are always worth praying for. Isaac has gone from wanting to pass on his blessing in his way, very functionally, to earnestly praying that God would keep his promises for his children, his grandchildren. And I wonder if we are praying that too, earnestly praying the promises for the next generation, maybe our own children, maybe nephews and nieces or godchildren, maybe our community or neighbours or colleagues or friends or our city. Isaac persists in prayer that the promises would be passed on, even though Isaac is responsible for a lot of mess, even as he sends his son into exile. So I wonder if we will persist in prayer too, even if our sin has damaged relationships with the people we're praying for, even if they seem geographically a long way away or spiritually a long way away from God. How can we pray like that? Uh, Here's a couple of suggestions. Why don't we take the prayer of the Lord's Prayer that we were praying earlier? And don't just pray that for ourselves, but we pray it for others as well. Or what about turning to the New Testament, finding some of those great prayers in the New Testament. There's, There's one at the beginning of Ephesians 1 or Colossians 1. Taking that and praying that for others, for the next generation. Promises prayed for. That's scene one. Scene two, promised land 
departed, promised land departed, verses 6 to 9. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realised how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Maalath, the sister of Nebaioth and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. What is going on here? Well, Isaac, Esau finally realises that marrying Canaanite women who, doesn't, who don't worship other gods hasn't gone down very well with his parents. And he thinks to himself, maybe I can redeem myself a little bit. Maybe I can go and do what Jacob has done, and I'll go and marry a cousin, which is, was kind of one of the done things in those days. So he does that. He heads in the opposite direction to Padam Aram. Padam Aram is in the north. Um, he heads it to the south, to the descendants of Ishmael. That's Abraham's other son, Isaac's half-brother. To marry a cousin, to try to redeem himself. But it's just too late for Esau. The news of Esau's marriage to Maalath. It's just a little footnote in the story. Jacob departs the promised land, but he will come back. Esau leaves the promised land. He will never return. And Esau is it's a little bit like a, it's like a flashing warning sign. He's saying, look, this is where godlessness takes you. This is where unbelief takes you. Do you remember what has happened to Esau? He traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. He then pleaded with bitter tears that his father would bless him. And do you remember those pretty heavy words at the end of Hebrews 12 we looked at the other week? He could not change what he had done. And so Esau's undeserving, cheating little brother, Jacob, he's about to meet God. But Esau... The unrepentant, godless, unbelieving older brother is shut out in the cold and he'll never return to the promised land and he'll never meet the Lord. What do we learn from that? Well, maybe simply to pray that none of us will ever be unnoticed, forgotten footnotes in the story of God's promises. May none of us ever stay in the unending exile of scene two but be surprised by the glorious surprises of what comes next. Scene two, promised and departed. Scene three, promise giver encountered. Promise giver encountered. Verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. The, the word place is the key word. It's there three times in the original. Literally, he struck upon a certain place. He took one of the stones of that place. He lay down to sleep at that place. Because from Jacob's perspective, this is just any old place. This is just where he happens to stop uh, for one particular night at the end of this 450 mile journey, partway through this 450 mile journey from Beersheba to Haran. And if you want to know roughly where that is, there's a map to show you. But the narrator is saying to us by his repetition of that word place, you know, this is not any old place. This is the place. 
This is the place where Jacob meets the Lord. Verse 12. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth, with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. As if to emphasise the just extraordinary uniqueness of this moment, the narrator uses a word that is used nowhere else in the, in the Old Testament. And so we're kind of left struggling a little bit. Is it a staircase, like a ladder, like we imagine a staircase? A ladder, sorry. Is it a staircase, like on the front cover of Led Zeppelin's famous album? Is it a, um, a staircase on like one of those ancient ziggurat temples? What is it? What does it look like? But I think as readers of Genesis, we are meant to think of that fourth picture, the Tower of Babel. Do you remember the proud builders of Babel, chapter 11? They thought, we're going to build a tower that has its top reaching into heaven. And they built their tower, but it never made it to heaven. But this staircase, this ladder, has its top in heaven. And messengers from God are coming down and up upon it. They, they wanted to go up the Tower of Babel to get to heaven, but God says, no, I'm coming down the ladder to you. We want to encounter the promise-giving God. We don't climb up with our pride. He comes down to us. That is what is happening for Jacob. Again, verse 13. It says, there above it stood the Lord. But if you look at the footnote, which again, I think is, I think is more helpful here, it says, there beside him stood the Lord. It's not so much that the Lord is at the top end of that staircase and Jacob has to get his binoculars out in order to see him. No, the Lord is right there beside Jacob. That is why in verse 16, Jacob can say, surely the Lord is in this place. Not a long way away over there. The Lord is in this place. Jacob is not expecting to meet anyone. He's running from his brother. He's lying down to sleep. He's looking for a wife. The Lord finds him first. Verse 13. There beside him stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Once again, the theme tune of the story is turned up to full volume. You see those promises again. Land, descendants, blessing. Jacob has heard his father pray those promises for him. But now he hears those promises from the, void, from the mouth of God himself. And as we read them, we might think, well, what has this got to do with me? But this is basically the gospel. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 8 says, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. He said, all nations will be blessed through you. All nations blessed through encountering the promised giving God. Justified by faith, our broken relationship with God restored, not through anything we've done, could do or ever can do, but simply by his extraordinary grace, his unconditional commitment to be kind to you and me, personally committed to us. Do you see how personally committed God is to Jacob? Verse 15, I am with you 
and will watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I've done what I promised you. It's as if God takes all of those great promises that he's given to Abraham and Isaac and he, he shines the light of them through a magnifying glass. And so the light is pinpointed there directly onto Jacob. Because Jacob is not just a piece in the puzzle for God, like a pawn that he can just use for a period and then move out of the way. God is committed to him personally. Jacob is he's heading into exile, isn't he? He's going to Paddan Aram, that's far from the promised land. And he's going there largely because of his own sinfulness, as well as the sinfulness of his brother and his parents. And God says, I'm going with you. I'll protect you. I'll bring you home. How should we respond if we encounter this gracious promise-giving God like Jacob did? Look at what Jacob did. Verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. I wonder if you can think of a, a place you visited on holiday, perhaps, out in creation. And you said, this place is awesome. Or maybe you, you visited an architectural masterpiece. And you thought, this place is extraordinary, awesome. Can you imagine being at the gate of heaven, you would never want to leave, would you? And Jacob realises that this place, that word again, is not any old place. It is the most amazing place he has ever been. And he's literally awestruck. He is overcome with godly fear. And he gives himself a bit of a talking to. He says... How did I not realise that God was here? And we might think to ourselves, he's being a bit harsh on himself here. It's just any old place on the road. Like, how does he know that he's gonna, this is going to happen? Well, surely the point has got to be, God is everywhere. Wherever we go, whatever place we're in, in the depths of the earth, in the heights of heaven, West or east, present or future, God is fully present in all places at all time. And so surely we ought to respond in the same way that Jacob did, with awe, when we encounter this promise-giving God. And please keep it just a finger, maybe pop your service sheet in Genesis 28. And just turn to me to turn with me to, to John chapter 1 for a moment. John chapter 1, um, verse 48, on page 1064. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 48. How do you know me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So one of Jesus' disciples, first disciples there, Nathaniel, is awestruck. He's thinking to himself, 
How on earth did Jesus know where I was under the fig tree before he'd even seen me? Jesus says to him, you think that's special? You'll see even more amazing things than that. Because Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, he's saying to you and me, I'm the ladder. I'm the staircase. I'm the gate of heaven. I'm the place where heaven touches earth. God himself, the Lord, stood next to Jacob. The Lord stands next to Nathaniel. And he stands next to you and me today in the person of his spirit. I wonder if we are ever a little too familiar with Jesus that we need to say to ourselves, like Jacob did, surely the Lord is in this place. I did not realise it. When we're at home with our family or our friends, when we're at work or play, when we're just out and about in our community or in our city, when we're with our church, do we need to say to ourselves, surely the Lord is in this place? I didn't realise Shouldn't that realisation fill us with godly fear? The fear of the Lord which is the beginning of wisdom and the fear of the Lord which leads to worship also. Turn back with me would you, to Genesis 28. Verse 18. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I'm taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. This is the first vow in the Bible, interestingly. And I... Pretty sure it is a response of genuine commitment to God. It's not, God's not saying, if you do this, then I'll make you my God. Jacob's not saying that. It's not, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Again, I think the, the footnote is, is the most helpful reading. You see that? Um, let me read it from there. So that I return safely to my father's household, the Lord will be my God, and so I will set up this pillar as God's house and I will give God a tenth of all, he's, of all I've got. Jacob has got a long way to travel geographically. He's got a long way to travel spiritually. Through the next few chapters he does not come across as much of a saint. He still has his famous wrestling match with God to come on his way home. But at this point in his life, Jacob is responding with faith. He is responding with worship. And eventually he'll get back to Bethel and he'll keep his word. He doesn't build a temple. That's initially what I thought. Oh, he's going to build a temple. This pillar will be God's house. He doesn't build a temple, but what he does is he builds an altar with this pillar and he makes a sacrifice of thanksgiving to God there. So if we have met Jesus, will we respond with fear and worship too? Will we be literally awe-inspired by the reality of his presence in our lives? giving him all we've got. It will be worth it. Scene uh, three, promise giver encountered. Scene four, promises providentially and partially kept, quite briefly. 
Then Jacob continued on his journey and came to the land of the eastern peoples. There he saw a well in, open com- in the open country with flee- three flocks of sheep lying near it, because the flocks were watered from that well. The stone over the mouth of the well was large. Journeys in Genesis to the east are never great journeys. Um, Adam and Eve sent out to the east from the Garden of Eden. The builders of Babel heading to the east to build their godless tower. But this eastern journey is a little bit different. God is with Jacob as he heads east. You see that in what happens. So Jacob meets the shepherds. And who would have guessed it? They happen to be from Haran. And who would have guessed it? They just happen to know Laban. And as chance would have it, just look. Here comes Laban's daughter, Rachel, round the corner. Jacob can't believe his luck. It's not luck, is it? Providence. And he says to the shepherds, look, uh, the sun is still high. It's not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. It's a little uh, comedy moment in the story. He spent 450 miles dreaming about this girl. And now he's got these like hangers-on hanging around. He's like, just give me a bit of privacy. I want to speak to her. Apparently not, they say. And so Jacob says, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really impress people now. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Apparently these sort of stones would take two or three men to roll away, but Jacob gets his guns out. He rolls the stone away and he says, take a look at that. Maybe God gave him that supernatural strength to woo his wife to be, who knows. Jacob kisses his girl, he weeps aloud, maybe slightly off-putting for Rachel, and he tells her the whole story. She runs off, she tells her father, he runs back to greet Jacob, and Jacob has reached his journey's end. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home, verse 13, and there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Promises providentially and partially kept. Providentially, because God is working in these seemingly ordinary moments to make sure that Jacob gets a wife. Because without a wife, God can't bless the world through his offspring. Partially, because even though Rachel is beautiful, this is just a small part of the plan. There is so much more to do. And there's a lot of trouble coming too, because Laban sounds warm and friendly. You are my own flesh and blood. But Laban is a dastardly scoundrel. And uh, Jacob the cheat is about to meet his match. And he really will need God on his side for the next 20 years. But God will be with him. God is no man's debtor. He works out all his promises for our good. Oftentimes not in the way we might have expected, not in the times we might have planned but always according to his perfect providence. He's in control of all things. He always will be. We often only see the partial fulfilment of his promises, but he will keep them fully in the end. And we can trust him. So how and where and when did we meet the promise-giving God? Has our encounter with him filled us with awe that leads us to worship, not just in certain places at certain times, but in all places at all times? And if in your heart today you're sitting here and you think, I know I haven't met him yet. Why don't you come to Jesus? You don't need to climb a ladder. You don't need to climb a staircase to find him. He came down the staircase 
to find you. Should we pray? Jesus said, you saw me. You will see greater things than that. You will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. We praise you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus is the place where we meet you. And we pray that you would help us to respond to him with awe and worship. We ask it in his name. Amen. And Sergei is going to come and lead us in our prayers. Thank you.